This morning we're starting a, a brand new teaching series. Uh, it will take us over the next four or five weeks, basically just uh, recasting some vision for who we are as a church. For those of you who've been here for a while, some of this is going to be old hat for you, but it should be an exciting refresher. Uh, for those of you who are more recent connectors to Hope, uh, we pray that this sort of helps to give you a fuller picture of the things that are important to us as a church. We call this Snapshots of Hope. We want to just take little brief pictures of some things that are important to us. It doesn't cover the whole gamut, but things that are important to us that, that we want you to know uh, that are important to us. And this morning we start with the thing that is the most important to us, and that is the person of Jesus. Without Jesus, we wouldn't exist. And if we did exist without Jesus, you shouldn't be here. There's a reason why we say, in terms of trying to cast a vision for who we are as a church, we use the statement, simply Jesus. And for some of you, that might have been intriguing. For others of you, that maybe that is confusing. But at the core of it, what we really want to communicate by that statement is that we see Jesus as the supreme priority of Christian faith. And that anything that takes his place in that front chair has done so in error. Well, many of you have experiences with church in the past, and you've said, well, I've seen lots of things take his place. Programs and tradition and uh, ceremony and, you know, people's desires or whatever. And we understand that, and I've seen that too. And it's why in trying to cast a vision for who we are as a church, we've made it front in center, that it's simply about Jesus here at Hope. So I'm going to take the next little bit of time and try to try to unwrap that statement for you as an identity to us. Uh, and my favorite way to do it is to go to the story of the transfiguration in Matthew's Gospel. So if you copy the scriptures, you can turn to Matthew 17. Uh, if you don't have one, feel free to just listen. In the story of the transfiguration, you have Jesus... Uh, taking what many would call his inner circle of disciples. So if you're familiar with Jesus, you might know that he had uh, 12 disciples. Um, 12 wasn't an accident. It was representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Jesus is reconstituting sort of the people of God around himself. But then amongst the, that 12, there was a, a smaller group, almost like leaders of leaders, you know, uh, this smaller cluster of three. And, and Jesus takes this smaller cluster of three sometimes, uh, and they get experiences that some of the others don't. And the transfiguration, of course, is one of those experiences. So here we go. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. There's that small cluster. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. And his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them both Moses and Elijah, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Uh, And he said, if you wish, I'll build three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while Peter hadn't even finished his sentence yet, a bright cloud covered all of them. And there was a voice that came from the cloud, and this is what it said. This is my son, whom I love. 
And with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, and and he said, get up. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one but Jesus. Fascinating story. Jesus takes this small band of three disciples, he takes them up this mountain, and as soon as they get to the top, he's what the Bible calls transfigured. That is, they begin to see the glory of God emanating from the person of Jesus. It's a burning bush sort of moment, or some of the other Old Testament stories where where people are privileged enough to, to get even the slightest glimpse of the glory of God himself. And then as this is happening, Moses and Elijah show up. And imagine these humble Jewish fishermen now catching a glimpse of the glory of God, but also seeing two of their greatest heroes. Moses, who had led the people out of Egypt and had parted the Red Sea. And Elijah, who was the great prophet of old, symbolizing all the prophets. And together symbolizing the law and the prophets, the whole old covenant. And Peter, who's willing sometimes to say the things that we would be thinking if we were there, right? Says, this is good. It's good for us to be here. We like this. In fact, let's never leave. Let me build three houses and let's just stay here forever. Right? And in that moment, something fascinating happens. There's a cloud, a bright cloud covers the whole thing. And the voice of God speaks to the three disciples. And God says, this is my son in whom I'm loved. Listen to him. And as they're on the ground in fear and all this is happening, you can imagine the situation. Jesus comes and touches them. And they get up. It says they see Jesus only. Now there are two things that happen in this passage. We could be really short and dumb, but I'm not going to give you that great privilege this morning. There are are two things that happen in this passage that really are the keys to understanding it. This story is really about God identifying to the leaders of the leaders, that is to the sort of the heads of the disciples, that Jesus is who he says he is. And he is greater than everything they've ever known. The first, of course, is the audible voice of God saying, Hey, Peter, I get it that you'd like to build three buildings here, but you've equated three people and they're not actually equal. Right? He says, This is my son. He didn't say, Hey, this is Moses and this is Elijah and this is Jesus. He said, This guy is my son and I love him. And and in him I'm well pleased. You should listen to him. Imagine that. The Israelites had known nothing except listening to Moses. They're still listening to Moses in this day. And listening to the voice of all the prophets who had called them back to God, who had spoken the future blessing on the people. And God says, listen to this guy only. And it's fascinating that he calls him his son, right? We theologically... Uh, we struggle with that, right? We're like, so is, how does this father and son thing work? We don't have time to speak through the whole trinity, but know this. 
that when God calls him the son, when we call him the son, what we're saying is he's the very essence of God. Right? It's not that he's the offspring of God the Father. It's that he's the very essence of God. He is God. And in the Father calling him my son, he's saying he's different than these other two who are my chosen instruments. This one is my very essence. It's why he's shining in such a heavenly, glorious way. And of course, the second point that distinguishes Jesus is when it's all over and their eyes finally look up again. Fascinating statement, right? It said, they saw Jesus only. The other two were gone and one was left. And so it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand what's happening here is the distinguishing of Jesus as the only means of relating to God. What I want to do with the rest of our time is to try to help us understand that by eliminating some of the things that didn't happen, but sometimes we live as if they did happen in the story of the transfiguration. So hopefully you can follow with my logic. Let's pretend we're in the story again, right? We've gone up the mountain. We've seen Jesus transfigured. We've seen these great heroes of our past, Moses and Elijah. We hear the voice of God. We're shaken. We're down. And then we look up. And what if we didn't see Jesus only? What if we saw nothing? What if everyone was gone? What would we be left with? Well, what I'd suggest to you is we'd be left with a spiritual mountaintop experience, right? A wonderful moment where we felt close to God and heard from God and were changed by the experience, but now it's over. And what do we do now? And if you've been hanging around the, the parts of the church for any length of time, you've had these moments, right? And the truth is, probably if you haven't been in the church, you've had these moments too. And they're powerful in your life. And they're really important, but the problem is they're often very fleeting, aren't they? They don't last. And oftentimes, when we find ourselves in broken places, oftentimes when we find ourselves hurting, questioning, struggling in faith, the mountaintop experience seems very far away. And it's not there for us. See, we've made an error sometimes as people of faith in that we've equated mountaintop spiritual experiences with true intimacy with God, haven't we? Uh, Pastor Jim and I had the, and, and Jess as well with us too, had the great privilege of being in Columbus, Ohio this past week at uh, the Christian Missionary Alliance. That's a family of churches we belong to, and we are so blessed to belong to them. Uh, at the General Council, which happens every two years. Uh, we're there with thousands of people, uh, seeing moving songs, hearing great spoken uh, messages, hearing stories from places in the world that would blow your mind of what God is doing. Right? Places where you, where you see stories on the news that say nothing good could be happening there. And yet the truth is that there's incredible things happening there. This was a mountaintop experience for me. Right? That was incredible. Story after story after story. Connections. I loved being in massive crowds and singing praise to God. I loved it. 
But if my whole life is built around general counsel, I've got to wait two years for it to happen again, right? And for many of us, our walk of faith is a bunch of strung together mountaintop experiences. And we wonder why life is so dry and difficult. And I think the answer is because we're living off the shell of a memory of an experience gone past. Instead of looking up and seeing Jesus only. The same one who led us up the mountain to the experience and walked us down and explained it to us and stuck with us through the valleys too. See, intimacy with Jesus is really about journeying with him day after day after day. And you might say, well, I'll get the mountaintop experience. I remember when I went to camp when I was a kid, and there's been a couple moments throughout. But the truth is, you know what? It's not so much that. Let, let me lower the bar just a little bit then. Let's talk about Sunday mornings, right? Now, I'm under no false belief that, I, that, that we're creating great mountaintop experiences for you Sunday after Sunday here. If, I, if we are, praise God, he's done something great, right? But we do try to create experiences where you can hear from God's word, where we can sing together, where, where things can happen. But friends, Sunday morning is not equal to intimacy with God. It just isn't. And, and if your faith is a bunch of Sundays strung together, trying to make it through Monday to Saturday to get to Sunday, then you've missed the beautiful picture of the transfiguration, that you have the mountaintops because you're intimately connected to Jesus, and he walks with you. Maybe the the whole point of this talk for you this morning is that you need to come to grips with and believe and enjoy the reality that When you leave here, you leave with Jesus. He actually desires to enter into the most mundane realities of your life. And the joy that you might experience on a Sunday or at a big conference or at a special moment in your life is just as accessible on a dreary Wednesday at work. Because the one who is the very essence of God goes with you. I hope we're not interested in creating a series of experiences for you. I want to, but only as a supplement to helping you and helping me, let's be truthful and honest here, truly connect to Jesus and to walk intimately with him day after day. Because as outstanding as a given sermon might be, or as wonderful as Adam and his team might lead you in a song, or as engaging as a prayer might be, the truth is that when you are hit with an unexpected serious diagnosis, or when life takes a bitter right turn, or when you're in another fight with your spouse, or when your kids continue to not be obedient, those things can be awfully fleeting, can't they? And yet, the very essence of God goes with you. See, when Peter, James, and John looked up, they didn't see nothing. 
and saw Jesus on. Well, what if after this had all happened, and Peter, James, and John, they were down on the ground, and then they finally looked up, and what if instead of seeing Jesus only, they saw Moses only? You ever thought about this? What if they saw Moses only? Moses is representative of the Ten Commandments, right? The Mosaic Covenant. That is, uh, some of those books in the Old Testament that you have never sort of had the courage to read, right? Leviticus and the ends of Exodus and a lot of numbers, and then Deuteronomy just says it all again, you know? And it's law after law after law after law after law. A whole way of sort of orienting your life so that you don't make a misstep. See, if you looked up and saw Moses only, then what we would be left with is that the only way that we could relate to God is through some kind of moralistic or religious obedience, right? Some sort of trying harder, some sort of of perfecting ourselves into a, a moral code. Listen, I'm about to talk bad about religion, so I need to say a few things before anyone gets afraid of it. Religion is not inherently bad. There's much of religion that I appreciate. Unfortunately, the unfortunate part with religion is that, in some level, it was created by man, and on every level, it's continued by man. And my experience of mankind, chiefly myself, is we shouldn't be leading or creating anything, right? It's too much of us gets into a good thing. And when sinful creation begins to lord it over, what you find is that things become tarnished and broken. And that the very thing that was supposed to point us to God reverses system and becomes God itself. Friends, when they looked up, they didn't see Moses only, they saw Jesus only. Not some semblance of moralistic or religious codes that if you were able to live by it, maybe, just maybe, God would be happy with you enough to call you into his life. Here's the problem with religion. I think it leads us into three traps. Three traps of religion. The first is that it defeats us. Religion defeats us, doesn't it? Because at the end of the day, here's the hard truth of religion. You'll never be good enough. You'll never be good enough. Right? Even if we could somehow prove that if you could be a very religious person in this very pure religious system, you could acquire God's love. The truth of the matter is, you could never keep it. Right? And I don't have to spend a week with you to believe that. I have boys at home. I have a wife. I have myself to know I can't do it. Humanity can't do it. All of the news reminds us that evil comes from us much more than good all too often. And for many of us who continue to bang our head against the brick wall of religion, we continue to believe I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy enough. I'll never keep this. Don't you understand what I've done? And what you find is an unbearable amount of guilt that loads your shoulder. Have you you felt this way? Have you felt it? In your life thinking, God, 
I know what you expect of me, but I can't do it. And then inside, you're believing the lies of the enemy that you're just not good enough. This isn't for you, then. I'm sorry. Thanks for trying. It'll never work. I grew up in many ways wrestling with this. Now, I would say religion did not defeat me, though. I fell trapped really to the second trap of religion in that it deceived me, right? If religion doesn't defeat you, oftentimes it will deceive you. And here's what I mean by it. Religion has this way of, of getting you to believe that you actually can be good enough to earn God's love, earn God's favor, earn God's acceptance, right? And I was under this spell of religion for a long time through my childhood years. That if I did a certain number of things, then God would be happy with me, right? Now listen, I, I, let's talk about the gospel in a minute. I believe the gospel that I was a sinner, that Jesus died for my sins, that, that apart on my own works I couldn't get to heaven. That was great. I believed that, and then I set it aside. And then I went on living my life trying to please God. It's as silly as it sounds, is exactly what I did. Because I was under the deception of religion that if I followed these laws, if I read my Bible enough, if I prayed long enough, if I went to enough church gatherings, and back in the day, there were a lot of church gatherings, right? And I was there all the time, right? And then other people began to speak the deceit of religion over you. Look at him, he's a good guy. Oh, he's really spiritual. Man, he knows a lot of Bible verses. Oh, listen to him pray. You know, he's there every time the church is open. This is a good man. He had no idea what was going on in my life. Right? Religion, it deceives us. It makes us believe that we can be better. But here's what it actually does. It makes us better at hiding the real truth about ourselves. Right? Because here is what religion does. Have you ever, uh, maybe when you were a bachelor, maybe maybe, uh, maybe when you were single, I don't know, um, have you ever gotten word that someone's coming over and your house was a disaster? Just imagine a massive disaster of a house, right? Like all the TV sitcoms that you see or whatever. You've got 30 minutes to clean this thing up. And so you're shoving things into every closet imaginable. You're putting stuff in rooms where you hope no one will ever go. So that when they come in, the space that they see looks like it's pristine and beautiful. This is what religion does, right? It doesn't make us better people. It makes us better at hiding the truth about us. So rather than dealing with the real issues that are true of me, I trim them so that they don't grow above the ground. Or I shove them away so that no one ever sees them. And so the well-manicured room when someone's coming over is your Sunday morning behavior, right? But what if you ran into someone on Wednesday? So religion says you have to be prim and proper, that everything has to be taken care of, but it's a deception. At Hope, well, here's the way I like to understand it, and I'm hoping this is helpful to you. I distinguish between what I call lowercase s sin and capital S sin. And here's what I mean by that, right? 
When I say capital S sin, I mean the the the, the, the sin that is inside of us, the brokenness that inhabits all of us, that will be true of us until uh, we're glorified one day when Jesus comes back. Right? It's the reason bad stuff comes out of us sometimes. Lowercase s sin, in my mind, is the stuff that comes out. Right? So, later on today, you know, I might get frustrated and, and scream at one of my boys, and it happens. It's hard to believe, I get it, right? But it, it does occur. Lowercase s sin is that I have a meltdown with one of my boys, right? Capital S sin is that I'm so desperate for their respect because I don't have my identity in Christ that I get offended when a 10-year-old disrespects me, you know? Like, how could he, you know? Do you see the difference? And so what religion will do is it's a fantastic lawnmower, isn't it? And so you ever have, like, weeds growing in your lawn or whatever, like dandelions? I didn't dandelions. They're everywhere. If you mow the lawn, it's as if they're not there, right? It's amazing. And then two days later, they pop up again. Isn't it fantastic? And this is what religion does to us. We can be better. We can fix these things. We can fix these things. But you're constantly trimming, constantly trimming, constantly trimming, trying to keep up an image that is not the real truth about who you are. Because religion doesn't deal with it. Religion defeats us. Religion deceives us. And the last thing to be a good preacher, I had to start with a D, right? So religion disturbs us. And this is what I mean by it, right? It, it, either you were defeated by religion and you're constantly full of guilt, I'll never be good enough, never be good enough. Or you're deceived by religion, I kind of am good enough. I'm doing pretty good here. Or it disturbs you and you say, you know what, I'm done with it. And this is the people who say, look at those hypocrites preaching at me all the time about how I should live. And they don't even understand how messed up their own lives are. Or sometimes religion disturbs us because we've been trying to be good for so long and then things don't go our way. And then we have a, a massive tirade towards God. How dare you? I've been serving you for 10 years and this is what you do to me? That's a religious fight. You see it? I did these things, therefore I do not deserve what you gave me. And we become disturbed by religion. Here's the reason you know that religion isn't what Jesus came to offer. Because in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I came that you might have life, and life to the fullest. And for those of you this morning who are feeling defeated by religion, I would wager a lot of money to say you are feeling lifeless. You are carrying a heavy, heavy load. And you are not believing that you are a child of the Most High God. But the one who is the very essence of God desires to be with you in spite of the mess in your life. You've begun to be, become overwhelmed by what you are. There's no life there. And for those of you who may be deceived by religion... Really what you're characterized in some sense, and, and hear me, 
because I'm speaking to myself too, is more arrogance than life. It's more about your performance than what God has done for you. And can I tell you something? You too are carrying an incredibly heavy burden. Wrestling with the fear of what if they really knew what was happening? Or what if the next time I mow the lawn it doesn't cut every dandelion? Right? And also the fear of at the end of the day, will what I have accomplished really be good enough for God? I mentioned that we were a general counsel, and we got to hear um, from a man from a, from a region in North Africa, um, an incredible man, who, who found, and I just don't have time to tell the story, but he found faith in Jesus through remarkable means. It would have happened without any Westerner ever being sent there. Like, in a country where it's illegal to be a Christian. Right? And now he's a pastor and doing all kinds of incredible things in this country. Uh, without any Western missionary, you know, he's doing, God's doing incredible things. And this is what he said. <laughs> he said when he was a young boy, he began to believe because his circumstance was so difficult that his only hope in life was God. And the only way he knew how to pursue God was through Islam, through religion, right? Listen, when I say religion, I'm casting a big net. I do mean Christian religion when it's sort of legalistic. I also mean the religion of the world. And the more and more he gave himself um, desperately to following Islam, the more he became to wrestle with the question, well, how do I know God? How do I know God? And he said that that all of his sort of mentors in Islamic faith would say to him, nope, you don't know God, you obey God. That's religion, right? And unfortunately, in many ways, we would never couch it in those terms when we preach the same stuff in Christian pulpits. It's not about you knowing God. You just better obey him so that you can know him someday. It's nonsense, you know? And this is what he said when he finally gave his life to Christ. He said, I learned to stop living every day by making promises to God. And instead, I learned to start living under the promises of God to me. You see the difference? Gospel is different than religion. The gospel brings life. Religion does not. And if you're here this morning and you're finding yourself, you know what, disturbed by religion, and you've rejected it, can I just say, I do too. Now, there are parts of it that I love, and we engage in some of it here, and so you might be saying, you're a hypocrite. Well, no, hear me right. We say Jesus is above religion. So my command to you is not, well, can you reshape your understanding of religion? My ask of you is, would you take another look at Jesus? Would you take another look at Jesus? See, at Hope, we believe that the gospel brings life, that Jesus only brings life. 
not some moralistic pursuit of trying to earn his love. When they looked up, they saw Jesus only, not Moses only. What if when they looked up after this all happened, they saw Elijah only? What then? Right? Now, if you're unfamiliar with Elijah's story, he did some incredible things. Like, it's incredible. And Elijah, in many ways, is representative of the prophets, who really had a, a twofold ministry in the Old Testament. The first was to call the people back to religious pursuit. Like, you're not living the way God asked you to live, and that's why things are going bad. But also, really, to speak about the future blessing of God. That is, God's going to bring back his promises to you, even though you have misled them. They were already speaking gospel. Do you hear it? Hey, God's going to bring this stuff back even though you're really not living anywhere close to it. He's going to bring back his kingdom. He's going to give you back the land. He's going to give you back blessing. And so in many ways, if the disciples had looked up and saw Elijah only, really what they would have understood is their only way they could relate to God is through waiting and hoping that someday God might bring back that which they had lost. Waiting for a future great promise of God to come. Now, any of you who've been in the the Christian church for a long time, you know that we do a lot of seeing Elijah only, right? (laughs) Like, one day Jesus is going to come back and it's going to be great. And then you say, well, what should I do till then? I don't know. Just wait, man, it's going to be great. You know? And we wonder why people are like that. I don't really want to be part of a church like that. Like, our non-Christian people who don't know Jesus, you tell them, hey, if you would just believe these three things about Jesus, one day, in the the very distant future, when you die, he's going to really make things great for you. Who's buying that deal, right? And that's the worst door-to-door salesman reality ever, and yet this is what we sell constantly, Elijah only. Hey, in the future, it's going to be great. Until then, just, just you know, white knuckle it, man. We'll get there, I promise. We're going to get there. You know? You ever got on a ride that you, the minute you got on it, you knew, oh, shoot, I shouldn't be on this thing. But the bar is already shut, you know? And your, your eight-year-old kid is next to you, excited, and you're like, I'm going to vomit all over my son. We're like selling Christianity to people like that. Hey, get on this awful roller coaster, but at the end, you'll get to get off. And it's going to be great. You know? Come on. We wait and we hope and we wait and we hope. And here's what futurism in place of faith does to people. You miss out on two things. And these two things are radically important. And it's why so much of the church in our world today, especially in the West, is dead as a doornail. The first is you miss out on life because you believe it doesn't happen until the future. So now you just live as you are. Woe is me, a bunch of Eeyores gathering together to sing happy songs on Sunday. Right? Did you read the headlines again? Oh my goodness. Well, maybe Jesus will come back next week. Nope, didn't happen. This is nonsense. You know? We Listen, please don't mishear me. I, I pray for Jesus to come back all the time. Maranatha, Maranatha, Maranatha. Because I want the fullness... But the truth is, we have entered into life now, not just then. 
right? Jesus didn't say, hey, I've come so that you might have the fullness of life after you have a funeral. He didn't say that. He said now. And so the reason we get messed up in this, right, is because Jesus says, hey, I've come to give, because we might have life eternal. You've heard this, right? Eternal life. And so we're like, eternal life? That means we'll live forever. And so we start there, and, and we get consumed with this idea of the quantity of eternal life. Like, well, so long. how long will it feel like? It's going to be forever. It'll be kind of weird, you know? But eternal life has very little to do with quantity and very much to do with quality. And oh, by the way, if something is eternal, how could it have a start date? It's now, right? It's already been going on. He's calling you to be included in it now. For a long time, I wrestled with, what is eternal life, you know? I remember when I was a kid in high school, I shouldn't go off on all these tangents, and I was at, I was having one of those mountaintop experiences at Harvey Cedars Bible Conference, and it was great. I still remember those things. And, and my youth pastor was telling me, well, you know, eternal life, it's like we're sitting on the beach. Eternal life is like if a seagull flew in and picked up one grain of sand every thousand years. Like, eternal life is like how long it would take for this beach to be gone. And I was like, oh, man. It seems like it could be really boring. <laughs> but I totally, I totally went quantity instead of quality, right? Because that's somehow that's what we do. And I was wrestling through this, and I remember, I still remember, shortly thereafter, when I was reading through the Gospel of John, and Jesus himself gives a very clear definition of eternal life. He says, now this is eternal life, John 17.3, right? That you might know the one who created you and me who he has sent. Jesus defines eternal life as a relationship with God through Jesus that grants us a full, meaningful life. Do I believe it's going to go forever? I certainly do. But friends, as much as I believe that, I believe it starts now, and it's about quality. And that the things that, that, that he promises that we're waiting on, like hope and peace and joy, we are waiting on something that is sitting right in front of us. I'm not making any promises to you that you jump on this eternal life thing that I'm talking about. Everything bad in your life is going to go away and it's going to be this happy, jolly reality. No. I'm talking about a Jesus only, the very essence of God who will walk with you through the crap of life and through the great things of life. And because of his presence will enable you to find peace and joy not just in the mountaintops, and certainly not just for the future, but even in the most desperate and dire circumstances of life. If you choose into some futurism instead of true gospel faith, you choose out of life, right? You've decided to serve an absentee Jesus, and you're just waiting for him to show up again. It's an Elijah only. In the very same way, You've also chosen out of 
entering into the mission that God has given us as his people. Right? You choose futurism over true gospel faith, then you don't engage in the world before you. Jesus says, and, and, and friends, forget Jesus for a minute, even in the Old Testament, in, in Jeremiah, when uh, the people of God are in this massive exile in, in Babylon, the worst moment of their life since the, since the Egyptian slavery period, the worst moments of their life, the temple is gone, everything is destroyed, they're in a foreign land, and this is the command of God. Not wait. He says, hey, I want you to build houses. And I want you to get married. And I want you to live a life. Right? He calls them to life, but what does he also call them to? To enter very purposefully into the world around them. He told them to buy real estate in Babylon. Aren't they Jewish people? In the same way, if you buy into futurism rather than true gospel faith, you miss out on the great joy of entering into the new creation that Jesus is doing in our world now. That's why so many in the church have this theological hope and understanding that God's going to make the world great someday and have no desire to do anything about it now. It doesn't make sense, does it? Hey, one day, everyone's going to be equal. Racism in our world doesn't matter to me. That doesn't jive, right? Hey, one day there's going to be there's going to be no difference in the world. Slaves are going to be like like their masters, right? Does the church have a role in poverty today? Nah. It doesn't make sense, right? We've called for a future reality, and we've said it'll happen then, but we've no part in it now. And yet Jesus says no. Anything that is in me is a new creation, and therefore an actor into the new creation in our world. If you choose a futurism over gospel faith, you're missing out on the fullness of life. You're also missing out on the joy of entering into God's mission of new creation in our world now. So they didn't look up and see Elijah only. They looked up and they saw Jesus only. Last possibility, perhaps. What if they looked up and saw some combination of the rest, right? What if it was Elijah and Jesus, or Jesus and Moses, right? Or all three of them. And this is what Peter would have wanted, right? He was building houses for everyone. Let's not let anyone go away. Then we would have a diluted reality of who God is. Wouldn't we? Listen, I've told you this before. I'm fascinated by survival shows on TV. There's no real reason for it. I don't like camping. I would never go out in the forest by myself. I certainly wouldn't go some foreign place by myself. But if one is on, I almost can't pass it on the TV. Right? And I'm fascinated. I'm learning all these skills that will keep me alive when I'm stuck in the Cambodian jungle. Right? So if you're stuck there, call me. I'll never be there. But you can call me. I'll help you, you know? But if I've learned one thing from the survival shows, more than anything, it is, when water is coming down from the top of a mountain and it's clear, it's usually pretty safe to drink. 
But if water is stagnant and it's muddy and there's all these things coming into it and people have messed around with it, you should pretty much steer clear of the muddy water, right? Parasites, germs, there's things that will kill you if you consume it. And we would never do that. Or at least we would never take it without boiling it to get rid of the bad stuff. And yet, for most of us, our Christian faith is a big muddy cesspool. A little bit of Elijah only, a little bit of Moses only, a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of no one. And we wonder why we aren't experiencing the life that Jesus promises. Don't drink from the cesspool. Drink from the clear mountain stream of Jesus only. Jesus took three disciples up a mountain. They saw a picture of the glory of God, and they heard from God the Father saying, This is my essence. Listen to him. They saw Moses and they saw Elijah too. But when they looked up, they saw Jesus only. Friends, if your life is a crazy zip line from mountaintop to mountaintop, and way too many times you get stuck on the zip line between mountaintops wondering why the dryness, Look to Jesus. He walks you up the mountaintop. He walks you down the mountaintop. And he walks through the valleys. Friends, if too much of your life has been given to religion, if you're here this morning and you are carrying a heavy load, you know what? If if it was just me and you and you were willing to be honest with me, You might say, you know what, I just don't think I'm good enough. I can't do it. I've tried. I'm a failure. Would you stop looking to religion to fix you? And would you look to Jesus only, who says, I will take your load and you can have mine. Do you believe that you are loved? In spite of what happened last night, God loves you. In spite of your performance over the past week, God is enamored with you. He is smitten that whenever you are ready to just look up, you're going to find him right Or if you're more like me for a long period of my life, thinking, you know what? I got this. I can read the Bible. I can even quote the Bible. I pray. I go to lots of church gatherings. I know the truth. I believe the truth. And yet you've set the gospel down, and instead you've tried to please God with your religion and your morals. And you're wondering why it is such a heavy 
load. My call to you is, could you just be honest with yourself this morning? You don't need to be that to be God's friend. You need to put some great show on to prove to God that you were worthy of the sacrifice for you. It's not how the gospel works. Friends, we don't act in obedience to God so that he might be happy with us. We act in obedience to what God calls us to because we are blown away that he loves us. Very different paradigm. If you have been disturbed by religion, can I ask you, can I beg you to wash your hands of religion and to give Jesus another look? And if you are waiting for that one great day when you will fly away, the great casket to the clouds transport that we long for, and I shouldn't be crass. It's a great thing. It is, and I believe it, and it's true. But if your whole faith is about that, can I plead with you to explore the reality that it's already begun? We have many voices in our life that are calling for our attention. The gospel calls us to look up, to see, and to hear Jesus only. Simply Jesus. Can I pray with you?